Lord, again, we come before you and we thank you for today. And specifically now, we, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask that as we open up your word and proclaim these truths, Lord, that your name will be glorified. Lord, we are asking and we are trusting that through your spirit you will do your work through the preaching of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you are in Acts chapter 8, specifically in the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, hopefully it's a story that you are familiar with. This is a story where the angel of the Lord comes to Philip and says, Philip, I need you to go down to, from Jerusalem to Gaza. Philip listens, he obeys, and when he arrives, he meets an Ethiopian who is in charge of all the treasures of the queen of Ethiopia. And now uh, we don't have time to, to break all of this story down. It's not our primary focus today, but we are told that he came, uh, had come to Jerusalem to worship. And now he is in the chariot, he's on his way back, and he's reading from the book of Isaiah. So with that, we have at least some understanding that this Ethiopian has uh, at least some strong Jewish influence in his life. He had been there to worship, he's reading from Isaiah, and then the Spirit leads Philip to go over and join the chariot, and Philip does. And when he comes up to him, he hears the Ethiopian reading from the book of Isaiah. And in verse 30, Philip asks, do you understand what you are reading? And I love the response here. Because look how the Ethiopian responds in verse 31. How can I unless someone guides me? In other words, uh-uh. I don't understand what's before me in these words. And we're like, I know, right? I need somebody to help me with the book of Isaiah too, Mr. Ethiopian. But now here's what's cool. And this is why I'm pointing to this in our study through Isaiah. The passage that he was having difficulty with, the passage that he's looking at is the same passage that we're looking at today. And look at the Ethiopian's question in verse 34. About whom... I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? And as we read, you're going to begin to understand, I hopefully understand how this and why this is such a great question. The, he is wanting to know who is the prophet Isaiah talking about in this passage. And what I love is what comes in verse 35 in the response of Philip. Because the Ethiopian's saying, who are you talking about? Who is this? And look at verse 35. Beginning with the script, this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So beginning with Isaiah 53, Philip says, in response to the Ethiopian's question, hey, let me tell you the good news about Jesus. He just points him to Christ right through Isaiah 53. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pick up in Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13. And the reason we're picking up in Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 13, is because that's where this passage should start. This is where it's going to continue forward. Isaiah 53 should really be at Isaiah 52, verse 13. But, so we start there. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. And shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you. 
His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and from his fo- and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he, he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, He shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Now what we have just read in in these passages is one of the most important prophetic passages that we will find anywhere in the scriptures. The central theme of this passage, these verses, being on the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And yes, big word moment, big concept moment, substitutionary atonement of Christ. And to help us understand this concept of what it means, what we're talking about regarding the substitutionary atonement, I want us to think back to the animal sacrifice system of the Old Testament for uh, a moment. Because culturally speaking, That's something that's completely foreign to every one of us in this room. At least I really hope it is foreign to every one of us in this room. But it would not have been foreign to this particular culture at this particular time. And what we have is the question, why were animals sacrificed? What was the purpose of sacrificing animals in the Old Testament? And the reason is, is that so their blood would serve as a substitute for the sins of the guilty. 
the substitute would serve as a, the, to pay for the sins of the guilty. It was a symbolic transfer of guilt from the guilty offender to the innocent substitute. So you have innocent, unblemished, spotless lamb of God, of God slaughtered as a substitute to atone for the sins, to pay for the penalty for the sins of the guilty, of the one who's bringing the lamb to the altar. In this case, they would bring literal lambs to the altar to be sacrificed, and their sin would be transferred to this lamb to pay the penalty. And yes, there's great mystery with this, the, the hows and the whys, there's tons of questions that we could ask, but scripture is clear. Without the transfer of sin from the guilty to the not guilty, without the substitutionary atonement, we have no hope. Now, what I want to do is try to illustrate this with one of the most recognizable illustrations in all of Scripture when it comes to this, that of the Passover. We think back to the Passover, and there was 10th plague is promised. And what's the promise? That the firstborn of every child is going to die unless they take the blood of a lamb. So they slaughter the lamb, an unblemished spotless lamb and they take that blood and they cover their doorpost they cover the doorway with it and then that night of the Passover God passes over in wrath and in judgment over the nation and what happens either those who take substitute they take shelter under the substitutionary work of that lamb so that lamb is slaughtered that lamb takes the wrath and blood is over the doorpost and God then sees that as a fitting substitutionary sacrifice for those in that house. The lamb has died on behalf of those in the home and he passes over. Yet everyone who does not take shelter under the blood of lamb, what happens? The firstborn is dead in their home. There's death by God's just judgment throughout all the land. The substitutionary atoning work where the innocent is taking the penalty for the guilty. And understanding this concept of substitutionary atonement is essential to understanding the gospel. And that's all that we want to do today is understand the gospel. We want to see, okay, what was Philip talking to and telling the Ethiopian out of Isaiah 53? How is he sharing the gospel? And so what we want to do is kind of look at it in four parts. God, man, Christ, response. This is not a unique outline for me. You'll actually, as you leave today, on the, very, on the welcoming table, there's a little track, there's a little pamphlet that says, what is the gospel on it? And then I have broken down inside answering that question. God, man, Christ, response. And it's a great outline, a great way where one, if you're wanting to share the gospel with someone, you're going to say, okay, where, where are we going to start? We're going to start with who God is. And then we're going to look at who we are in relation to God. And then we're going to look at who Christ is and what he has accomplished. And then it's a call for response. How do we respond to this good news? And that's not only something we want to use when we're sharing the gospel, but when we're also preaching the gospel to ourselves every single day. We need to be reminded of these truths every single 
day. So what we're going to do is we're going to start with God. Right here in chapter 52, verse 13, it starts with, Behold my servant. Which then begs the question, whose servant? Who's the servant a servant of? And then for the sake of time here, the, the servant is clearly Christ. We're seeing that he is Christ, and Christ is the servant of the Lord. And this is what's really cool about reading Old Testament prophecy. We can talk about all the frustrations in reading Old Testament prophecy and all the difficulties in reading Old Testament prophecy, but here is the good thing, the encouraging thing for us who have the New Testament knowledge and can look back on the Old Testament through the lens of the Old, look back on the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament. This is what we have. We look at a passage like Isaiah 53 and we're sitting there hopefully saying, there's Jesus. <laughs> this passage is all about Jesus and there's Jesus and that's Jesus. Every bit of this, it's all about Jesus. All of it. And here's the thing. Isaiah 53 was written 700 years before Christ. 700 years before Christ. You know, that's someone prophesying, to put that in perspective, that's someone prophesying in detail about your life and your death 700 years before you lived. That's from the early 1400s. Before Columbus sailed the ocean blue, this would have been prophesied about you and it would come to complete and total fruition. This isn't just a good guess. You know what this is? This is a miracle from God. He's telling us 700 years before it happens exactly what will happen to Christ. And now we can look back upon it. The Ethiopian gets to look back upon it as Philip explains. And he says, oh, there's Jesus. This is Jesus. This is what Jesus has done. So with that in mind, with the concept and understanding that God is the one in control of all things. Think back to Isaiah chapter 6 with me where we saw Isaiah the, the eternal triune God of the universe, not Isaiah himself. We saw God in Isaiah chapter six as the eternal triune God of the universe doing what? Sitting upon the throne, how? High and lifted up. He didn't see Uzziah, did he? He didn't see the king who had reigned for 52 years. He saw who? He saw the Lord high and lifted up. Now, why is he seated upon the throne? Why is the Lord the one seated upon the throne? Why are the angelic beings, these seraphim, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord? Why? why? Why is that not happening in regards to us? Why is that not happening in regards to you and to me? Because in the beginning, none of us created the heavens and the earth. <laughs> none of us were, were eternal like God. God created the heavens and the earth. And because he is creator, he has creator rights over absolutely everything. Meaning he alone determines right and wrong. He alone has the ability and the knowledge to be able to say what is good and what is evil. What is just and what is unjust. He is the one who tells us exactly how we are to live as his created beings. He is the one that is in control. We are not we are the creation. He is the creator. And in sharing the gospel and reflecting upon the gospel, it all starts right here. We, we miss this, and by default, we miss everything else. We need to understand that God sets the standard of righteousness. 
And that standard of righteousness is complete sinlessness. God demands absolute obedience, perfect obedience to his rules in order to inherit fellowship with him, to have fellowship with him. Why? Why? Absolute perfect obedience? Yes, absolute perfect obedience. Why? Because God hates sin. Sin is the antithesis of who he is as the holy, holy, holy God of the universe. And yes, God is loving. And yes, God is good. And yes, God is gracious. And he's compassionate. And he's merciful. And he's forgiving. But don't miss this, church. Scripture is clear that he will never clear the guilty. Want to see that? Look to Exodus 34, 6 through 7. You can jot that down. Those who violate his rules will not go unpunished. They will not. Thus we need to take that knowledge and we go to our understanding of man. We take a knowledge of holy, holy, holy God, knowing that he will not let sin, he will not let violators of his law go unpunished, and we turn and say, okay, now who are we in relation to holy God? Because if we're going to understand the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement, if we're going to understand what Philip was really explaining to the Ethiopian, we've got to understand who we are in relation to holy God. And I'm just being real for a moment. I think this is, is a spot. I think this is something that churches in general and in large part are, are missing big time in modern Christianity. Because it's so much of a fear of offending people that we're, we're afraid to say what Scripture says about the human condition. To really come and say, this is what it says. Or we want to focus on what the Scripture says about the human condition and we forget and we miss what the Scriptures are saying about the gospel in totality. And that's what we want to see today. So again, we go back to the beginning. And by the beginning, I'm talking about Adam and Eve beginning where God created Adam and Eve in what? In whose image did God create Adam and Eve? His image and in his likeness. Why? For his glory. That's why. And then he gives them instructions. He gives them a job description per se. And he tells them what? Be fruitful and multiply. You know, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over all of the creatures. That's a good job description, man. That is a good job description to have. And Adam and Eve were created to be a holy people, to delight in, rest in the glory of God as they carried out his will. They were to be God's people, living in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule in this perfect, unbroken, sinless fellowship that was there. There was only one thing that they were forbidden to do. To eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Just don't eat of that tree. Do everything else I said. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue, fill. Just don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it. What do they do? They ate of the tree. <laughs> and everything changed in that moment. The moment that they ate, sin entered the world. Death became a reality. The unbroken fellowship with God was broken forever. Why? Because they denied his sovereign authority as creator. They denied his sovereign authority as creator. And God, 
cannot let the guilty go unpunished. Cannot. So they're removed from the garden. The curse has fallen. Sin now transfers from, from Adam to all of people, all creation. But it's not just Adam and Eve who are guilty of rebelling against God. It's not just Adam and Eve who are guilty. So are we. Every single one of us in this room. Isaiah tells us here in Isaiah 53 verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Who's everyone talking about? Everyone. Uh, everyone. Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Who's all? All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Each and every one of us have sinned against God. Rebelled against holy God. Yet you know what we're tempted to do? We are tempted to treat our sin and sin in general, specifically our sin, because somebody else's sin, that's pretty bad. Our sin, you know how we treat it? Like a parking ticket. <laughs> Oops, my bad. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. I'll do better next time. I'll, I'll, I'll try not to do it again. Now, don't hear me wrong on this one. I think most of us, most people in general, will admit that they're sinners. We I have no problem saying, yeah, I know I'm not perfect. I'm not a perfect person, but nobody is. And at least I'm better than that guy. And we're always picking on that guy, remember? Because that guy, whoever he is, everybody's better than that guy. And then that guy is like the worst person in the world. He's deserving of God's wrath, not me. We'll just do better next time. God is, he'll forgive me. We don't, we don't see our sin like God sees our sin. And yes, we're finite and that's not completely possible, but we need to understand who we are in relation to holy God. And Isaiah 53 describes our condition. Verse four, as a people of grief, a people of sorrow, meaning that we are a people of sin. Verse five, we're, we're identified as transgressors against God, a people of iniquity, a people deserving of the chastisement, deserving of the punishment of God. God, we're a people in need of healing. Back to verse six, it says we, we've gone astray. We, we've turned to follow our own ways. Basically saying that creator God says, hey, this is how you shall live. And like Adam and Eve, we rebel and say, oh, I don't think I'm gonna live my own way. God says, hey, I, need you to, I want you to do this according to my word. And we're like, mm, no, I think I got a better option here. As such, verse 10 as we're following along in the text, we are a guilty people. Therefore, verse 12, we're a people deserving of death. Why? Because God will by no means clear the guilty. And death is the punishment for sin. It's Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. And it's not just a physical death, but spiritual death. See, our sin separates us from the unbroken fellowship with God forever. And forever is a very long time that has no end. <laughs> and eternally separated, un with we no longer have fellowship with God. Our sin condemns us eternally to hell by the just judgment of God. That's a heavy that's a weight. 
Like there's a chasm that cannot be bridged, cannot be conquered by our own will. That is to leave us heavy and longing, like what am I to do? And here's where I picture Philip talking with the Ethiopian. And he's walking through the, the, the text. And remember, the Ethiopian has been reading Isaiah already. He's been reading through Isaiah. He's come to this point. And I, when he's grappling with it, he's coming to the reality of this truth, of who he is in light of holy God, in relation to holy God, I picture him responding like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. Woe is me, for I am lost. And then this is where I picture Philip coming in. And saying, yes, you are. But here's the good news. Here's the good news. And then points him directly to Christ. Because all of chapter 53, it's all about Jesus. There's so much here. Like starting in back in 52 verse 13, looking at, at Christ, he says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. <laughs> You're thinking back to Isaiah chapter 6. Who is high and lifted up? Lord. Who's going to be high and lifted up and exalted? Christ. Here we're told that the servant of God will be exalted by God. But what we have seen thus far, and what we're about to look at going forward, it doesn't look much like exaltation, does it? It looks a lot like humiliation. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel. It's the promise that the exaltation of Christ will come through the humiliation of Christ. His coronation will come with a crown of thorns placed upon his head. Just look at me, if, if you will, with me, if you will, starting in Isaiah 53, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This is pointing the original readers. This is pointing the Ethiopian. It's pointing us, all of us here today. It's pointing us to the incarnation of Christ. It's pointing us to the purpose of Christmas. It's pointing us to the reason that the Son of God took on flesh and how he grew in wisdom and stature like a small plant. You think about an infant. They're sweet when they're sleeping, and they're sweet when they're not fussing for a bottle, right? They're totally dependent, <laughs> completely and totally dependent, like in every way. They're not useful to society in the least, except to say, oh, they're so cute. And all, I mean, all, they're good for business, I guess. But we look and see there's nothing there like a small plant, you can run over it with a lawnmower. They're like, oops. <laughs> like, there's nothing like mighty about a plant, right? But what we see is an allusion back to Isaiah chapter 11 of what we looked at last week. And the shoot from the stump of Jesse. And this, this whole idea of a virgin birth, God in the flesh, humiliation, a crown of thorns. This is a stumbling block for the Jews. It still is. It's a stumbling block for many. His appearance. Jesus doesn't fit the bill of what they're looking for, what they had in their mind of the Messiah, of the Christ. And that's why we see in verse 3 in Isaiah 53, 
He was despised and rejected by men. From the religious leaders of the day to his own family. He was despised and he was rejected. Then the same verse, he's described as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Whose grief is he acquainted with? Our grief. Whose sorrow is he acquainted with? Our sorrow. We've seen through our study of Mark, Jesus healing person after person, haven't we? Performing miracles and from healing the unclean to the lame, to the paralyzed, to to the blind, even raising the dead. Each of these miracles serving as a picture of a much deeper spiritual healing that Christ came to accomplish. See, we need to understand that the, the central mission of Christ was not just to perform temporary physical healings to people who would later die. He wasn't coming and saying, okay, paralyzed man, get up and walk. Okay, four, four years later, you're dead. Well, that, that's not the central mission of why he came. It's not, not, not the reason. He came to reconcile sinners to God. He, he came to make it possible for the wicked to be made right, for sinful people to be made right before holy God. Therefore, verse 4, he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrow. Meaning he stood in our place condemned by becoming sin for us. Our sin placed upon him. Our sin attributed to him. And in bearing our sin, verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment from God for our sin. And then verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Church, this is substitutionary atonement. Christ is standing in our place, condemned. That's Christ receiving what we deserve. Our guilt being transferred to him. All of our sin being transferred to Christ at the cross. And then we look again at verse 5. That is what brought us peace. Not our efforts. not, not, Not the things that we're configuring but the work of Christ. You know, that, that peace that we're longing for, that the healing that we're longing for, for the wrongs of this world to be made right, this is the answer. This is how we are healed. This is how sinners are made right before holy God. By his wounds, we are healed. And not temporarily, not, not just for a moment, not just for a few years, but eternally, eternally made right before holy God. Church, the eternal son of God, verse seven, was oppressed and afflicted for us. For us. Even though, verse nine, he had no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus was completely innocent. Jesus was righteous in every single thing that he did. Yet in his affliction, beaten beyond all human semblance, that's what chapter 52 verse 14 is telling us. 
He opened not his mouth, verse 7 from chapter 53, like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And this is the direct spot, this is the direct quote that is coming in Acts chapter 8 where the Ethiopian is asking, Philip, who is this? Who would do such a thing? Who would bring such a love? And what does Philip say? It's Jesus. Jesus never says a word to defend himself. Rather, verse 8, he was stricken for the transgressions of his people. And of course, the overarching question that leaves us with is why? Why would the eternal Son of God do this? Why? Verse 10 tells us, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. To demonstrate the greatest act of love and the greatest act of justice the world has ever or will ever see. The Lord put him to grief. The death of Christ was the will and the plan of the Lord. And the natural question then again is why? This is extremely hard for any person, any human mind to, to grasp or to wrap our minds around. How could God the Father take any pleasure in crushing his son? How could he take any pleasure in this and making him suffer? Because let's face it, for any human father to delight in crushing his son is nothing less than vile abuse of the worst possible kind. So how is that not true of God? How is that not true of God? And I think the best explanation to this is to look at Jesus' own attitude toward the cross in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Let me read that again. Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. The delight of the father in verse 10 is the same as the joy of the Son in Hebrews 12 too. Not in the cross itself, that's reserved for Christ, but in the glory it would win for God and the salvation it would make possible for a multitude of people greater than anyone could begin to count. A people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. See, the substitutionary atonement of Christ was immeasurable pain. Immeasurable pain, both for Christ and for the Lord, followed by immeasurable and infinite joy. The only thing I can think to describe this even in a small sense is, is the thing of, of childbirth. You have immeasurable pain, which I would know nothing of, right? Immeasurable pain, uh, followed by what, moms? Immeasurable joy. Immeasurable joy. For by his death, 
by his suffering, Jesus did what? He justified. He made right the guilty. Joy. <laughs> Unspeakable joy. Verse 11, through Christ's suffering, many were accounted righteous Wicked people have been made righteous by the work of Christ. What was impossible has now become possible exclusively by the work of Christ. Joy! Ethiopian, joy! You mean there's hope for me as a sinner? Joy! Let this sink in. He substituted our sin for his righteousness great exchange. And we who, be, have, who believe have been clothed, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So sinner, when God sees us, if we have responded to him in faith, if we have believed in him, if we are trusting in the shed blood of the lamb, he doesn't see our wickedness. He doesn't see our wickedness. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Joy! This is joy. and It's not just our joy. This is God's joy. This is why we look and see that Jesus is right now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Because God's wrath was satisfied in full. Not by your work, not by my work, but by the work of Christ. Joy! And what's Christ doing there now? What's he doing? Verse 12. He makes intercession for the transgressors. What's that mean? Those he died for, Jesus is right now interceding for. He's praying for you right now, church. Right now, which... It means if we are in Christ, Jesus is praying to God the Father on our behalf right now. We who once were lost, dead in our sin, now have an advocate in Christ who is interceding in our behalf. It's what the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost, completely those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. But what does that mean? <laughs> what is Jesus praying to God the Father for us? What does it mean that his prayers save us to the uttermost? Again, we don't have time to camp out real long, but two quick reflections. First, look with me at 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He doesn't want us to sin. Don't sin. Do I continue to sin so grace may abound? By no means. Do not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Here John is writing solely to believers in this. He's telling and saying, these things, these truths to believers. And he's not saying we need to be saved every time we sin. No, we do not. The sacrifice of Christ 
was once and for all time. But if we do sin, and we will before we even leave this room today, when we do sin, if we do sin, when we will, we have an advocate, Jesus, who on the basis of his life, not ours, on the basis of his death, not ours, calls attention to his perfect righteousness, not ours, in defense of sinning saints such as us. Joy. It's the perfect righteousness that we see here that has been attributed to us, that we have been clothed in. And secondly, we see Jesus is praying that even though we as believers will be faced with many trials and many temptations that will attempt to, to lead us away from the faith, to lead us astray, he's praying that none of them will shipwreck our faith. Jesus is praying this. He's praying that our faith will not fail. That is the prayer that Jesus prays for Peter before Peter denies him three times. You can jot it down, Luke chapter 22, verse 32. Have that in your notes. P Jesus is praying for Peter, praying that, our, that your faith will not fail. What does Peter do? He denies Jesus three times, right? But you know what does not happen? He doesn't stop believing. He screws up big time, but he doesn't stop believing. His faith does not fail. Why? Because Christ is interceding on his behalf. So he is for us. This is how we persevere in the faith until the end. Not by our efforts, not by our strength, but by the work and the intercession of Christ. It's this intercession that gives us the assurance of our faith. It's the reminder that from start to finish, salvation is 100% the work of God. Church, we were never good enough to earn salvation. We were never good enough for him to lavish that righteousness upon us. And we can never be so bad that we will lose it. If we are truly in Christ. Will we sin? Yes. But we know what we do when we do. We repent. We move forward. And we keep trusting that we have an advocate. And this leaves us with one lasting question. Isaiah 53 verse 1. It's a matter of response. Who has believed what he has heard from us? Who has believed what he has heard from us? Who has believed this good news? You know who did? The Ethiopian. <laughs> he heard and he responded. Philip's like laying out the gospel truth. The Ethiopian says, I believe there's water. I want to be baptized. I want to follow in obedience to the Lord's commands. I'm going to live for Jesus. <laughs> Life changed. Christ now interceding on his behalf forever and all times. But you know what we see about the Ethiopian? Before he came to faith in Christ, he was already a religious dude. He was going to church. He, he made his way to Jerusalem to worship. He was reading the Bible. 
He was going through, through the motions. Definitely God can, can work through that, but he was not a believer. I don't know how long he had heard these things. Definitely had Jewish influence in his life. I don't know how long some of you have been attending services and maybe in and out of church and maybe your entire life. Religion has been a part of your life, but it's never been kind of who you are. You, know, you, don't, you can't say I, I, you have a relationship with Christ. You can't stand here confidently and say, I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I am standing confidently in his shed blood. Not in my works, but I am under the blood of the Lamb. That's not you today. And if that's not you today, call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Believe in him. Take shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And he will save you. And he will clothe you in his righteousness now and forevermore. He will be your intercessor now and forevermore. You can know this joy today. And I'm pleading with you. If you do not know Christ, believe in him today. I pray that these truths will just sink in and marinate within your soul and explode into gospel truth. And if you do know Christ, you are resting in Christ. Oh, church, walk out of here with confidence today. Walk out of here with assurance today that because of Christmas 2,000 years ago, Jesus came and he walked the life and he lived the life that you and I have completely failed in living. He walked and he lived the life that Adam failed. And then after living that perfect life, he went to the cross as the spotless, unblemished lamb of God. And he was slaughtered. Our guilt transferred to him. And now we who are Christ are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Quit beating yourself up over your sin. Aware of it? Convicted of it? Great. Repent. Move forward trusting in Christ. Rest there. Believe this. Oh, I want to continue. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we recognize from your word that you are creator. You are holy and you are deserving of all our worship and all our praise and all our obedience. Lord, we admit that we are sinners deserving of your just judgment. We, we have screwed up in so many ways. We deserve your wrath. Yet as we reflect upon the gospel, we, we see the greatest act of love and the greatest act of justice this world has ever known. And how Christ was slaughtered for, for the sins of your people. To redeem a people comprised of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language on the earth. We recognize that Jesus received our guilt. We who have come by faith, we receive his righteousness. And Lord, to that we say, thank you. It's because of the work of Christ we have confidence that you are hearing our prayers right now in this moment.
We have confidence and we have assurance of our faith because Christ is our intercessor. And again, we say thank you. We thank you for your lavish grace. We thank you for your lavish mercy. We thank you that you are interceding in our behalf. And for those who have not yet responded in faith, Lord, we ask that you will bring them from spiritual death to life in Christ today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's respond to the preaching of God's word. Let's respond to the gospel by singing the gospel through the power of the cross. Let's stand together now as we sing.